Just this past summer, I got to, uh, I got to officiate my first wedding. Um, it was one of my very best friends from college, and it was a really, a really an honor to do. Uh, he's a, a successful guy, um, very smart. I mean, I was with him in college and probably the smartest guy I know. And uh, now, after several years after college, I'm not sure I'm going to tell you how long that's been. Uh, but he's achieved a, a pretty good deal of success in his life. In one of our premarital talks together with him, he opened up a little bit about um, some of the things that he loved about his soon-to-be bride. And then in relation to his professional success, thinking about marriage, he said something along these lines. Um, You know, all my life I've been looking ahead to a time when I finally accomplished something. Obtaining certain goals, achieving career milestones, getting certain things. But then he said this, now, as I think about marrying his wife, I said, I don't really care about all of that. He said, I just want her to, her to be happy, for her to feel honored and cared for. And you see, my friend's not perfect by any means, um, but in that moment, I was able to see something in him, and it gave me a glimpse of what I think is at the heart of marriage. Marriage is about sacrificial love. He was willing to sacrifice for his soon-to-be bride. Now, I found this quite interesting. After the wedding as an officiant, um, people come up and talk to you, and they're just about willing to share anything in their life. It's quite, it's a great opportunity, I should say, Um, and I'm glad that it happens. People have a degree of trust with someone who officiates a wedding, um, so this happened to me after, after, the, after officiating the wedding, and um, people opened up to me about the difficulties of their lives, things like um, children who had gone wayward or divorce that had gone on in their life. And so this led me to ask, and I think this is appropriate for the text that we're going to be in today, it led me to ask this, what happens when we, as sinners, fail in our sacrificial love. What happens when we fail? Well, today we're going to continue our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. And over the past several Sundays, we've been navigating several of Jesus's ethical teachings. And Jesus is telling us what life in his kingdom is supposed to look like. And honestly, it feels at this point like wave after wave of hard teaching. We've gone through persecution, We've gone through anger. Last week we talked about lust. And you might think, well, now do we finally get a breather? Can we get something easy? And Jesus says, well, not so fast. Uh, I'm giving you something else. Where I might want something more simple, maybe a little less controversial. Today we're getting teaching on another controversial topic, a heavy topic. In the text, Jesus goes right into divorce. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, This morning we have just two verses, and I invite you to open your Bibles with me there. It will be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. And if you have one of those hardback black Bibles around you, you can find that on page 810, 810. It's also going to be shown up on the screen behind me here. I'm going to read these verses for us. I should mention also, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we love to give them away. There's some other hardback black ones in the lobby. If you would like one, feel free to take one as a gift from us. Let's read this together, starting in verse 31. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Just two verses, but some heavy verses. And as a church, we're committed to preaching through books of the Bible, not dodging the hard stuff when it comes up. And so here we find ourselves today. Now, I want to address just a few things here at the very beginning. Uh, First, I recognize that there are many different kinds of people in the room. Um, Certainly in this church, even, there's all kinds of different people. Some of you might be curious. Uh, You think uh, you have a strong marriage, um, or you're unmarried, and you're just curious about what Jesus' teaching might be on a topic like this. 
Others are divorced or have been divorced. Some may be divorced and then remarried. Some others of you may have a family with a stepmom or a stepdad, or you might have uh, step-siblings, a stepbrother or a stepsister. Um, there's all kinds of experiences that we have. So I want to recognize that that's the case probably here in this room and in any group of people. Um, second, I recognize that there are many ways to approach a sermon on divorce. Now, certainly we could address every issue as it relates to marriage and divorce systematically, hitting on every conceivable topic related to this. Um, I want you to know that likely this sermon will not address every question that you have. Um, but my hope is that I will share something of the meaning of this particular text that we have in front of us and from another closely related passage in Matthew. So that's, that's my goal here. Um, I do want you to know that we as a church want to be a church that loves and cares for one another. So no matter what you are going through, no matter what you have gone through, we want to be a church that cares and loves one another. And so we're glad that you're here. Um, I also want to mention, um, if something comes up as I'm going through this topic and you would like to discuss things more, since I'm not going to address every conceivable issue related to this, if you want to discuss this more, and it might be the case, um, I would love to speak with you more. Please come up to me or one of the other elders, Dane, at another point during the week, Dave, um, someone like Alex. We'd be happy to talk with you uh, more about um, what's going on, and we would hope that we point you to God's Word as we do so. Um, third thing I want to mention is I want to recognize the devastation of divorce. As I think about loved ones in my own life who have gone through a divorce, and I've seen it firsthand, um, I feel like it's appropriate to make somewhat of a representation of what this might be like for you, just to so, that, so that you know you're on my mind and my heart as I'm coming to this text. Um, this is a, a longer quote, but I, I think it's appropriate to read here. Speaking of the experience of the devastation of divorce, uh, it says, quote, it's often long years in coming, long years in the settlement and in the adjustment and the upheaval of life, it's immeasurable. The sense of failure and guilt and fear can torture the soul. Like the psalmist, night after night, a spouse falls asleep with tears. Work performance is hindered. People don't know how to relate to you anymore. Friends start to withdraw. You can feel like you wear a big scarlet D on your chest. The loneliness is not like the loneliness of being a widow or a widower or a person who has, been, who has never been married. It's in a class by itself, which is one reason why so many divorced people find each other. In a sense, a sense that the future has been devastated, has been devastated, can be all-consuming. Uh, courtroom controversy um, compounds the personal misery. And then there's the agonizing place of children. Parents hope against hope that the scars will not cripple the children or ruin their marriages someday. Tensions over custody and financial support deepen the wounds. And the awkward and artificial visitation rights can lengthen the tragedy over decades. And to add to all of this, it happens in America to over four out of every 10 married couples. Divorce can be devastating. And those who go through a divorce in this country is only increasing. Fourth, lastly, I want you to know that we're going to follow Jesus' lead as we approach this. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us the force that we should feel and the direction that we should go as it relates to the commandments. And often the force that we feel is deeper and the direction that we should go is farther than we ever imagined or thought possible. However, I want you to know that it's easy to follow his lead when you know his heart. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's easy to follow his lead when you know his heart. He wants your soul to be at rest, and he wants your burdens to be light. That's Jesus' heart for you. And so we come to this text. In the light of this passage and the tone of this text, I want to be appropriate to what this passage is doing. And the tone of this text is one of warning. So here's the main idea. Jesus warns against divorce. 
Jesus warns against divorce. He's going to do so in two ways. First, Jesus warns against divorce by correcting a superficial view of divorce. And second, Jesus warns against divorce by cautioning us with the serious results of divorce. Jesus warns against divorce by correcting a superficial, superficial view of divorce. And second, Jesus warns against divorce by cautioning us with the serious results of divorce. I'll repeat those as we go along. So first, Jesus warns against divorce by correcting a superficial view of divorce. There were those in Jesus' day who thought, who thought divorce was not a big deal. And Jesus pretty much comes onto the scene in the midst of that culture, and he says, it actually is a big deal. Yes, divorce is a big deal. Just like anger was a big deal, just like lust was a big deal, just before in this passage, divorce is a big deal too. And so we see what Jesus says here in verse 31. He says, it was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, as we, look about, as we look at the pattern of what's going on here at the Sermon on the Mount, you can see this. But in the passage surrounding this one, Jesus approaches a common teaching of the day. He'll say something like, you have heard it said, and then he gives his own authoritative teaching, but I say to you. Now, often these common teachings come from the Old Testament. And in this case, that's what's happened. But what happened was these people read the Old Testament and misinterpreted it and misapplied it. So Jesus comes in and tells them and tells us what the true force of the commandment was supposed to be. So this applies to us as well. So what's the reference? The reference here in uh, verse 31 comes directly from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus is simply referencing a passage that we see in our Old Testaments. Now, here's the broader context. I'm going to read this just so that it's put in front of us. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, she departs out of his house, and if she goes on and becomes another man's wife, on and on and on, you know how the Old Testament law is, it can just go on. But then this is how it ends. Then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. Okay, so we've got a pretty complicated situation that's going on here in Deuteronomy 24. But the gist is that a man marries a wife, finds some indecency, is what the passage says, and then gives her a certificate of divorce. She goes on to get remarried and she gets divorced again. Or that next husband might die. Uh, can they get remarried? In the context of that passage, the instructions there in Deuteronomy are no, they cannot. So then over time, this passage came to be taught in the form of what we see here in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, if you divorce, give a certificate of divorce. Okay, what's going on here? Well, the crux of what's going on in the passage surrounds exactly what Moses meant when he wrote this. And then what exactly, what exactly constitutes some indecency? Okay, a little more on this later, but here's, here's what Moses is doing here. He was not instructing them to divorce. Rather, he was regulating a practice that was already taking place in that culture. Let me say that again. Moses was not instructing divorce. He was regulating a practice that was already going on in that culture. So you have to remember the context of Deuteronomy. Remember the people of Israel. God himself said they were a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. They were stubborn. They were rebellious against God, the God who, create, who had created them. And part of the law, when Moses comes in, was supposed to restrain some of this rebellious behavior. They had already turned aside from what happened in Genesis chapter 2, and the glories of marriage, and they've turned to a shameful view of marriage. Apparently, they were okay with many divorces happening for whatever reason at all. And the Pharisees were likely okay with that too. Here's a cross-reference passage, Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees come to Jesus. They ask, is it lawful to divorce for any cause? Jesus, and Moses for that matter, say no. Now, what actually constitutes some indecency? That's what Moses was going through. What constitutes some indecency? Well, it was debatable among the Jews of the day. Around the time of Jesus, there were two schools of thought. 
Um, it's likely that the teachings of these two schools were the background of what Jesus is talking into at the time. So people would say, well, I'm with that school or I'm with this school. It's like someone saying, I'm with the Patriots or I'm with the Giants. Okay, you pick your school and you're with them. Well, or maybe I should say college. I'm with the Georgia Bulldogs and you're with Boston College. Who knows? You pick a different school to go into. But Jesus himself steps into this and he says, well, I'm actually with neither one of these schools. But what did these schools think? There were two schools. One of them was the Shammai school, and one of them was the Hillel school. Okay, pause for a second. Kids, if you're in the room, I have a challenge for you. If you can come to me and show me that you have spelled Shammai and Hillel correctly, I might give you a high five or something. Or maybe we can come up with a good treat. But you'll have to see. See if you can spell Shammai and Hillel. All right, that's your challenge uh, for now. Uh, here's a quote from the Mishnah. This was a, a, a Jewish passage. It was basically like a commentary on the Old Testament. It gives us a little bit of an insight about what's going on in the culture of Jesus. So in the Shammai, here's the quote. It says, the school of Shammai says that a man may divorce a wife unless he has found unchastity in her. For it is written because he hath found indecency in anything. So the, the, so the Shammai school interpreted some indecency as unchastity, or we might could say sexual immorality. It says this about the Hillel school. This was the more permissive of the culture. The Hillel school, this is a quote, says, he may divorce her even if, he has, if she has spoiled a dish for him. And so, this is seriously what it says. The Hillel school believed that some indecency might apply to something like burnt toast, bad coffee, or over-easy eggs if you don't like them. Seriously, it's crazy. It makes no sense, but that's what they believe. All right. Now, with these two schools as historical background, we can see that Jesus doesn't come out and say, I'm with this school or that school. Rather, he just takes this common teaching of the day and says, this is really all just pretty superficial. Now, he comes alongside the more, the more conservative school, the Shammai school, um, but he essentially is saying that the Jews had missed the force and the direction of what the command was supposed to say. They missed the force. They missed the direction. There was a command not to commit adultery within the confines of marriage, and they misunderstood it. But it's not as if it's only the Jews that had a superficial view of divorce. Am I right about this? Can we not see that today, likely in our culture, here in the 21st century, there are superficial views of divorce? So this week, I just Googled divorce to see what would come up. Here's some of the links. One of them said, divorce papers for just $159. And there was an answer to the question, what's the fastest way to get a divorce in Massachusetts? Now, brothers and sisters, if our marriage, if our view of marriage is as cheap as $150 and worth a fast track out, we've probably gone against Jesus. There's more substance to what a marriage is. Now, I've seen another article that I think pretty much explains the prevailing view of divorce in our culture. Here's the title of the article. It says, the only eight times is excusable to leave someone you truly love. The only eight times is excusable to leave someone you truly love. Okay, even from the title, we could ask, do we even have the same definition of love? Is it excusable to leave someone you truly love? Um, anyway, here are the eight reasons. Uh, one, you're unhappy, and it's clearly because of the relationship. So unhappiness. Two, the good times are outweighed by the bad. Three, if you don't see yourself spending your life with your partner, you don't see yourself with them anymore. Four, you've lost trust in your partner. Yeah, you've lost trust. I should just say here, um, I think it's kind of odd using the word partner you know, we talk about business partners or like a workout partner. Um, ordinarily, you have a more significant relationship with your husband or wife. So if you're a Christian here, like, be normal. Call them a husband and a wife. I think it's appropriate to do. Okay, sorry, sidebar. Four, uh, here's the fifth one. Uh, your partner doesn't treat, doesn't treat you the way you deserve to be treated. Uh, six, your partner cheated on you. Well, Jesus talks about that one. Seven, you fell in love with someone else. Eight, uh, you're not capable of loving the, your partner the way your partner deserves. 
Now, according to this article, you can, you can dip out of marriage if you're unhappy, you're going through bad times, or you've fallen in love with someone else. Now, Jesus talks about the one on cheating, like I said, but think about everything else in the list. Like, who, who hasn't experienced or seen marriages where sometimes the bad is outweighing the good for a particular season? That's probably all of us in just about any marriage. Or you even feel like you can't provide everything that a person needs from you. I mean, that happens all the time. Isn't this the reason why we need measures of grace and patience and forgiveness. But for all of these reasons, the prevailing view in our culture is that these faults, or even no fault, is okay. It's fine. And I might say, again, it's a, if it's ever excusable to leave someone you truly love, how you truly love that person remains to be seen. If you're willing to just leave them. So surely, marriage and divorce are worth more than simply to be superficial. Jesus challenges this superficial view of divorce and warns against it. Marriage is a big deal, and divorce is no small thing. So Jesus asks them, and he goes on, Have you really considered just how serious it is? Do you know the serious results of divorce? And so he goes on. Here's the second point. First, he warns against divorce by correcting a superficial view of divorce of that day. Now he's going to warn against divorce by cautioning the serious results of divorce. So look down in verse 32, if you still have your Bibles open. It says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is a strong caution from Jesus. But why speak so strongly? In part, I think it's because Jesus knows and is reinforcing the mysterious glory of marriage that existed before all of the mess happened in the world. One of the most amazing passages that speaks to the mystery of marriage is in Ephesians 5. If you've gone to a Christian wedding, it's likely that this passage has been preached. But in verse 31 of that passage, Ephesians 5, it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So if you've been to a wedding that Dane has preached and officiated, or if you have been in a wedding that Dane has officiated, you've probably listened to that passage read and taught, and you've heard him teach on this before. But even if you haven't, this verse really describes the substance of what marriage is. So that word hold fast in Ephesians 5.31 is the superglue word of the Old Testament. Superglue, like really tight, binds things together really closely. Uh, in marriage, all that was once considered mine becomes ours. Two people become one flesh. This means that in marriage, your lives are so intimately intertwined that you could be considered no longer as two, but as one flesh. This is really doctrinally pretty amazing that it actually happens that way. But we know this practically as well, don't we? See, our finances come together, our belongings, our housing, even the food that we eat, our friendships with others, our relationship to one another, the emotions that we have. So much of these things and many more, they're shared. And it's so much so that they're not easily divided. We become one. It's hard to divide these things. In fact, it's impossible to divide them without causing some kind of damage. Now, a very simplistic picture of this, an illustration of this, is if you take two pieces of paper. And let's say you take two pieces of paper. Let's say it's in one of these bins that the kids have. You have super glue. You glue them both together, and you stick them together. You let the glue dry, and you wait for a little bit longer, and you try a little bit later to pull them apart. What's going to happen? Well, first off, you're not going to be able to, right? And if you do, it's going to be tattered and messed up and destroyed. They're shredded up. There's so much destruction. Now, that's just a simple illustration. The truth is you can't really divide them neatly, and it is so much more so when a divorce happens. You can't divide them neatly. Divorce always leads destruction in its path. There's serious ramifications when it does happen. But look down here at the passage that Jesus is talking about. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus focuses on divorce, particularly what it does to others. Do you see that? What it happens to others. 
Jesus says that divorce leaves sin and destruction in its wake, but he also says that whoever divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. Furthermore, he says that whoever marries this divorced woman causes her subsequent husband to commit adultery. Now, we have some more exegetical work to do here, but that's what he says. That's what's going on here in this passage. Now, I just want to mention, I know this is thorny. This is very thorny, especially as it regards to what we call a sin and what we call not a sin. And can I be honest with you? I knew that this was a heavy passage coming into it, and it truly does cause me to tremble. And the reason why I'm even preaching on it is because it's in the Word of God, and we must. We must go to it. And as someone who preaches, I just think about a passage just a few few verses above this one where Jesus says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever relaxes the commandments. He also says, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So here I am teaching, and I'm just trying to be faithful to what the passage is saying. And I want you to hear Jesus's commands, to hear his tone and to hear his heart. So here you are listening, and here, hopefully, you're seeking to obey Jesus. Now remember, Jesus' heart is gentle and lowly toward you, toward everyone. He desires that we fall into his loving embrace and follow in his faithful footsteps. And so, by his grace, we will. And so Jesus teaches and gives us commands for our good. And he teaches them to us in a tone that is good for us as well. A good practice that I've found in studying the Bible is to go just as far as the text itself is going, and as far as sound exegesis will go, and not any further. As soon as you start making speculations onto the text, you might be making misinterpretations just like the Pharisees were, And you might also be going into the realm of sin. So all I'm trying to do is to go as far as the text goes and no more, not to go beyond any more speculation. So we want to not be like the Pharisees who Jesus rebuked. We want to be more like the Bereans in Acts. Remember, they searched the scriptures and saw if these things were so. So that's what I'm trying to do here. So what can we say related to this passage? Well, in the immediate context of Matthew chapter 5, the teaching on divorce comes on the heels of a passage on lust. And so Dane preached that last week and did a very fine job handling it. Here's what what we need to know. There's some connections between the two passages, and we can see this. The sin that's come up and the commandment that have come up are the same. It was both the commandment to not commit adultery. And so here is what Jesus is trying to do in that passage as before. Adultery is not simply an outward action but a disordered mental imagination or internal affection. Let me say that again. Adultery is not simply an outward action, not simply the act of following through on an adulterous relationship, but it's a disordered mental imagination or internal affection. That's what Jesus is teaching just before this. But for Jesus, the sin of adultery doesn't stop there. He applies it to the heart in that passage, and here he applies it to the breaking of the marriage covenant to divorce. So we can, see a, we can see a connection there in the immediate context. So we can say that just as Jesus warns against anger, lust, and hating your enemy, Jesus warns about divorce. His tone is sharp and it's cautious. Just like living with anger and living with lust or living with hatred toward your neighbor is not the way that God intended for you to live neither is living within broken marriage covenants. It's not God's original intent. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not God's original intent. Now, of the New Testament passages on divorce, this one probably says the least about divorce. But at the very least, we know that Jesus is correcting the superficial view, which allowed for divorce for virtually any reason, so this we know is sinful. You can't just divorce for any, un, any conceivable reason. He also, um, let me see here. Uh, so that, that's what we know is sinful. I'm, not, I'm trying not to misspeak, misspeak here. Um, but we need some extra help. 
So this passage speaks the least, but we need some more help from some other passages. And so I want to go briefly to Matthew chapter 19. If you have a Bible, it will be helpful for you to turn there at this time. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, is, Jesus treats the point on divorce with a little bit more substance so we can get some more understanding of what's going on. So if you're taking notes, this will be like a third point. Jesus warns against divorce by continuing his teaching. He's warning by continuing his teaching. So I want to walk through these passages and we can, we can do so pretty quickly, I think. But here's what Matthew chapter 19 helps us with. It helps us to interpret the passage in Matthew 5 that says relatively little and tells us more. It gives us five different ways that it does so. Assumptions, additions, allowances, agency, and ability. Okay, that's my uh, alliteration there. I'll kind of repeat those, but maybe they're helpful as we go through. Okay, so first, we get some insight into historical assumptions historical assumptions regarding divorce. So look there, if you're there in Matthew chapter 19 to verse 3. We've already said this briefly. And the Pharisees came up and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So we addressed this one earlier when we were talking about superficial views of divorce. This was one. The Pharisees essentially asked, can you divorce for any reason at all? Clearly, Jesus's answer is no. Okay, so let's go to the second thing. We get some additional teaching some additional teaching from Jesus on marriage. Look at verse 4. He answered, Jesus is answering, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a male shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus, in response to the question, doesn't say no. He says, have you not read? And you see what he references there, don't you? He's going back to Genesis 1 and 2, to the original account of marriage in the very beginning. So if we ever wondered what Jesus thinks about marriage, this is it. Jesus rooted our understanding of marriage in God's original intent as he created it. The insight is crucial for our understanding of marriage. Marriage is not simply a creation of man. Marriage is a creation of God. And it's not something that we can manipulate, edit, or change. God himself created it. And we submit to it. And there we see that superglue word again. You see that? The hold fast. Here we see that God is taking two people and making them one flesh. What we can say from that is God is intimately involved in marriage. He is joining two people together. Jesus makes an astounding statement related to God's activity. He says, let not man separate that which God put together. Now, this is Jesus' teaching, and this is the way that things were in the very beginning. So we must say at least that much. Now, third, as we move through Matthew 19, in this passage, we see Jesus gives an explanation for Moses' allowance. Why did he even give this allowance in the first place? Remember in Deuteronomy 24, I said Moses was not instructing them to divorce. Rather, he was regulating a practice that had already begun. You can see here in verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? That's a great question. It's a question I had too. Why even allow it? Here's Jesus' answer, verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And so, Jesus tells us that Moses' allowance for divorce was grounded in Israel's hardness of heart. Sin from a hardened heart broke the relationship between God and men. And sin from a hardened heart broke apart the relationship that existed between man and woman. And Jesus says that from the beginning, this was not so. It was not that way. So God's intention from the beginning, from creation and continuing into now, is that marriage would be a lifelong covenant commitment. That's what Jesus says here. But he continues, verse 9. Then he tells this other statement, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So after pointing to hardness of heart, 
Jesus continues to reiterate his teaching on adultery similarly to the way that he did in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 32. But this time, Jesus mentions that the initiator of the divorce is the one who commits adultery. Rather than, like in the Sermon on the Mount, it says the divorcee and her subsequent husband are the ones that committed adultery. This time, he's saying the person who initiated it. Notice as well, we have that exception clause in here, just the same as we did in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this clarifies for us some of Jesus' teaching on agency. Agency. So, in other words, who is the one responsible for adultery in this case? In this case, Jesus says it's the initiator of divorce. Now, finally, the passage ends here with some shock. There's some shock. So, look at what the disciples say in response to what Jesus just said. Verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case with a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made, who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. The point here is about spiritual ability. Spiritual ability. The disciples are evidently shaken by what Jesus has just said about divorce. And so they say, if that's true, then it's better to not get married at all. Notice Jesus doesn't correct them. Instead, he says, not everyone can receive this, only to those to whom it is given. He then talks about eunuchs, specifically he talks about those who willingly forego that kind of relationship. And then he ends with this teaching, let the, let the one who's able to receive it, receive it. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is explicit in his teaching here in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, there are other passages in the New Testament that we could go, through, go to for some more clarifications. And thank you for bearing with me as we go through all the nitty-gritty for this. I'm just trying not to misspeak. I want you to see what the Word of God says. But for your reference, if you want to reference some other passages on marriage, remarriage, divorce. There's some more in the New Testament, Mark chapter 10, Luke 16, 1 Corinthians 7, Romans 7, all those passages you can go to to get a further understanding of what's going on here. Okay, I want to go into some applications on this. How do we apply Jesus's teaching? First, I want to address just the different Christian approaches and the different views on divorce and remarriage. Okay, so there's different views, but I want to make very clear as a Christian reading the Bible, there are some non negotiables here, and here's some of them. All of these views hold to the importance and durability of marriage, every single one of them. Marriage is very important, it is a big deal. In fact, it is a massive deal that reflects on God's relationship with his church. And so, every view of Christian, every Christian view on this must hold to the importance of marriage, every single one of them. And none of them think that divorce is somehow not very serious. And none of them think that divorce is to be gone through lightly and for any reason at all. Some, however, do hold to the idea that the marriage covenant can be severed, that is, broken off. This, for instance, might be what Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount or in Matthew 19 when Jesus brings up an exception regarding sexual immorality. That could be the case. Likewise, all of these views hold to the priority of care and safety. Every single one of them. Every Christian, and we should too. So, in the case of abusive, abusiveness, where someone is unsafe, Christians should affirm the priority of care to the highest degree. If someone is in a potential situation of harm, it's best to get some distance, at the very least, so we take this extremely seriously. So all of these Christian views hold those things together in common. Now here are some different views. They relate to what you believe about divorce. They, believe, they relate to what you believe about remarriage. The first is no divorce and no remarriage. So there's no grounds for divorce ever, and there's no grounds for remarriage ever. So uh, this passage holds to the highest possible view of the creation ideal for marriage that we reference from Genesis 1 and 2, what Jesus himself said in Matthew 19. They hold, to the, they hold to that bond as having never changed and never will. That's, that's what they're doing. No divorce, no remarriage. Uh, 
Another option is this, divorce in limited cases and no remarriage. So there might be limited instances for divorce, but still no great grounds for getting remarried. So the limited instances for divorce are sexual immorality, like we talked about in this passage. So that's like unrepentant adultery, continually given over to this sin. Another that people reference is abandonment, where someone might have literally abandoned the other, or the other is death, where the, sport, the spouse might have died. So that's another view. Divorce in some instances, but no remarriage. Another view is that divorce and remarriage can take place both in some instances. This view allows for divorce in the instances I just mentioned above related to adultery, abandonment, or death. They would also, hold, they would also allow for remarriage, but often there's a caveat that remarriage happens only when the previous marriage was broken off for permissible reasons. So that could be if the innocent party was the one who had their spouse who was given into unrepentant adultery, or they abandoned, or they're the one who died. Then you're able to get remarried. Okay, that's a general lay of the land. Now, I think there's a way to hold these views together charitably. As you search the scriptures, Christians disagree on this. In fact, when I'm studying for this, the three most helpful preachers that I go to, they all disagree. Okay, so there must be some degree of Christian charitableness as we relate to these views. But I do, I would encourage you to search them out and to develop from these passages what you believe about them as well. We must hold marriage to the highest regard. So that's one thing. That's the different views of marriage. Okay, quickly, another couple applications here. I want to say a word to those who have been divorced. If that's you, if that quote I shared at the very beginning is you. I've said over and over that Jesus warns against divorce, and I do not want to be misunderstood. That does not mean that Jesus warns against divorced people. Jesus is the one who's gentle and lowly in heart. He does not want your heart to be unnecessarily burdened. So please, don't misunderstand me, and don't misunderstand Jesus. He has never once said that he warns against you. In fact, I can think about a couple stories from the Gospels that are helpful here. John chapter 4, remember the Samaritan woman came to Jesus. He says, I know that you've had five husbands. Remember the story? And then what happens to her? This is one of the people in the Gospel narratives that Jesus makes very clear about his identity as the Messiah. So for someone who has sinned as grievous, grievously as that Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, Jesus thought she was qualified to receive a unique revelation of his own character. Isn't that amazing? Jesus cares for all people, especially people in this kind of situation. Another John chapter 11, remember this passage about the woman that was caught in adultery, not at all related to this, but he says, he comes to her and he says, I'm not going to condemn you. And for those who are condemning you, if you're without sin, why don't you cast the first stone? Guess what? None of them cast a stone because none of them were without sin. But then what does Jesus say to this woman? He says, go and sin no more. He met her with his mercy, and then he sent her away with his empowering grace to say no to sin. So, by no means does Jesus look at you and give a warning against you. In fact, Jesus welcomes you into his very own heart. Now, as a church, we ought to be loving and caring toward anyone going through a situation like this. So the first thing that we as a church that I, I would hope would be the case is that we come alongside anyone going through a strained relationship with their marriage particularly someone who has gone through a divorce or someone affected by a divorce. So the first thing we as a church should do is to come alongside these people, to grieve and to help work through the complexities of the situation. And if there was any sin on their part, to help them to repent of it. And if it was purely sin of another that caused all of this, help them to grieve the reality of it. That's what we should be as a church. But to also love and care for them, we should also articulate a hatred for divorce. In fact, God himself says he hates divorce. 
in Malachi. He says he hates it. We should hate it too, and we should do all that we can biblically to keep it from happening. We should have that kind of love for one another so that we don't see the destructiveness of this going out. You know, when Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he meant it. And he meant that for you. So that's a word to those if you've experienced this. I want to say something briefly also to those who might have throughout this whole sermon kind of tuned out. Okay, you're single, you're unmarried, all of this stuff kind of feels distant from you. I just want to say something to you. Um, Ideally, in the context of a local church, you have mutual relationships, right? And if your friend, your brother and sister in Christ is going through something like this, it it's compelling for you to be able to help that person out, right? So it's good for you to search the scriptures to know how to counsel another at the very least. So you should also take this very seriously. You should encourage along married couples in their flourishing. You should encourage them. If they come to you and they come to you with complaints and frustrations and irritants that have gone on in the marriage relationship, you should be one that doesn't point them away from their spouse, but you should be the kind of person that is the cohesion. Point them back to each other. That goes for all of us. The way that we can best love our married brothers and sisters is to point them back to each other and cause them to find a way to reconcile. Also, if you're single, unmarried, you have a unique ministry role to play in relation to this, but also as it relates to teaching those younger to you. If you're a woman, it's a wonderful opportunity to teach and encourage those younger than you, younger women. Older men is a great opportunity that you have to teach and encourage those younger than you. So you can do that and do that as Jesus himself empowers you too. So, and also, as you consider marriage, I might say this, When the disciples responded to Jesus' teaching on marriage, what was their response? It was one of shock, right? So as you consider marriage, you should consider the cost of what it takes. What Jesus himself said, do you feel the same way that the disciples felt at the prospect of entering into a marriage relationship? It is to be held in the highest honor. Okay, another application here, and we can end on this one is to honor marriage. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says this, let marriage be held in honor by all. Now, Jesus doesn't intend his teaching to be entirely the removal of something evil without the insertion of something good. So when he gives a warning against divorce, he's not just saying, saying empty the cup. When Jesus comes and he gives a teaching, he doesn't just leave you with an empty cup, he also fills it up. So the way in your life to get rid of any kind of sin that's going on is not simply to get rid of it, but to fill it with something else. Jesus has a, uh, an expulsive power when he enters into something, right? So if the warning here is against marriage, the, the thing that we should enter into it is a way to honor marriage. Marriage is the positive iteration of this. And in fact, as I mentioned earlier, marriage is a pointer to the relationship that Jesus has with his people. And somehow, in some way, our marriages participate in that relationship. We reflect that relationship as we participate in marriage. Now, marriage is something to be honored. What I mean by this is not simply that our personal relationships in marriage are to be honored. What I'm talking about is the institution of marriage, the very reality of marriage. We should hold a great responsibility in making sure that marriage is honored. Marriage in God's eyes is to be honored, esteemed, prized, and valued above every relationship. It is to be honored. And we should be, as Christians, the most pro-marriage people in the planet because it is a wonderful depiction of how God has loved us. It should be lifted up and prized. When Jesus talked about Christians being a city on a hill, marriage is a city on a hill to, our, to a watching world. It is a wonderful depiction of sacrificial love for one another. Honor marriage. Last thing I want to say is I want you to remember the covenant keeper. Remember the covenant keeper. 
Jesus is the one who makes a promise. He follows through on his promise. And Ephesians 5 says that Jesus loved his church and gave himself up for her. He cleansed her with water by his word, and he's going to present his church, that is all who have confessed faith in him, in splendor, without any spot or wrinkle. Furthermore, God himself in the Old Testament says, I will not leave you nor forsake you. Jesus himself says at the end of Matthew, go into all nations, make disciples. The way that you do that in this world is by Jesus promising his presence with you forever. He says, I am with you always. Remember the covenant keeper who sealed his covenant with you related to your faith on the grounds of his very death. He followed through on his covenant to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he verified that covenant by rising again from the dead and proving that everything that he said is true. So if you've placed your faith in him, you can have confidence that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will be with you forever. Remember the covenant keeper. He will be with you always. Marriage is the context in which the gospel shines the brightest if we allow it. Remember the covenant keeper. Remember the gospel. Remember Jesus, the perfect husband, who will never leave you. Let's pray. Father, as we've worked through this passage, Lord, I confess it's heavy and weighty. But Lord, I pray that we would know your heart, that it is gentle and lowly, and that when we follow your lead, we're only walking in the pathway of faith, knowing that we can trust you. Lord, help us to say no to these superficial views related to one of the most intimate relationships in our world. And Lord, help us to hold with the highest regard what marriage is intended to be from you. Lord, we pray, we ask for your help as we do this. Lord, help us to be obedient like the Bereans, to search the scriptures to see if the things that have been spoken are true. And Lord, help us to walk the pathway of obedience in full reliance on your covenant-keeping power. In Jesus' name, amen.